Thank you, worship team. Uh, thanks to all the volunteers who, who make uh, each Sunday work around here, all the blast volunteers, the tech team that also allows some people to be at home, and uh, we welcome them in as well this morning. And uh, just say good morning, glad you're here. I'm going to introduce myself because the last time after I spoke, I went home and my wife Lydia said, it's just not very polite or friendly that you dive right into the message. You don't even say who you are. And, and since my wife was really wrong, I'm, I'm going to follow her advice. So my name is Steve Collard, and uh, we've attended Lakeside for almost 30 years, and I serve on our pastor, elder, and, and teaching teams here. I'm a husband. I'm a father of three grown children and a grandfather. They call me Pa, which I love, uh, to three unbelievably good-looking, talented, <laughs> adorable grandsons. You know where my focus is now. But although I've introduced myself, if we haven't met before, uh, you don't really know me, right? You, you don't know what kind of person I am. You don't know what motivates me. What, what makes me tick? And uh, to find that out, you might ask me this question, what do you want? What do you want? Because what we want, what a person wants, what motivates them, uh, what they think about all the time, that's, that's actually who they really are. That reveals their story. So you could say to me, Steve, why did you become a father? Why did you do that? What did you want from being a dad? And I might say, well, I just became a father because my wife wanted children. Uh, isn't really my gig. You know, I just wanted to make her happy. I'm not really that interested in fatherhood, and I want to be involved as little as possible, actually. I want to be a spectator. That's what I want. Or a second possible answer might be, all my life I wanted children. I love doing cannonballs in the pool and reading Goodnight Moon five times before I go to bed. That's what I like. What I want is a relationship. I want to be a dad. I want to be invested in my children's lives. You see what a different dad I might be based on what I want? What I want. What's motivating me? That's who I really am. And so if you ask me what I want, you learn more about me than just the title that I might have as a dad or, or something else. Asking someone what they really want is how you learn what's below the surface of a person. And in our series, we're going through Q&A with God. Today, we're going to see that Jesus did this. In two different examples, he asked the question, what do you want? And the answers he received revealed a lot about the people that he encountered. And so if Jesus were here, we're going to want to cross over to our own lives and say, what do you want? If Jesus asked you that, what, what would you say? And what would that reveal about where you are in your life, in the direction of your life? And so we'll spend some time thinking about that too. But we're going to be in Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. And if you want to turn there with me, we're going to read beginning at verse 35, and we're going to get to our first example here, which is James and John. So uh, Mark 10, 35, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, 
what do you want? What do you want me to do for you? So here it is. What do you want? Who we are is revealed by what we want. What did James and John want? Verse 37. And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. So far be it from me to criticize two of Jesus' most well-known disciples, James and John, but this was a slimy move that they were pulling here. You can tell it was slimy because of the way they asked it. Like, Jesus, just tell us you're going to say yes before we ask you what we're about to ask you. Like, sign this blank check. They're asking for the most honored thrones in the kingdom of Jesus. They want the best seats in the house. They want the most important place, at least next to Jesus. Jesus asked them what they wanted, and they revealed that they weren't the most noble disciples at that point in time. They were selfish. They were self-centered. Even after following Jesus, the model of humility, they didn't get it. And so Jesus starts explaining this to them, verse 38. So we'll go back to the the passage, verse 38. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink with the baptism with which I'm baptized you will be baptized, but to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. You know, Jesus is gracious to James and John when they asked what they wanted. I mean, they had the wrong idea, but he he wasn't, did you notice, he wasn't harsh with them. He said, yeah, you don't really know what you're asking. The other disciples, they were not gracious. They were indignant. Eugene Peterson describes that as they lost their tempers. Hot words, hard feelings. Not so with Jesus. He knew that James and John had lessons to learn, just like we have lessons to learn. And so in asking them, what do you want me to do for you? It opened up the door to a learning opportunity. It's called discipleship. It's how we learn more about how we can be like Jesus. They had to learn who they really were to become more like Jesus. And they had a superficial understanding right now about what it meant to be great. They looked around and said, we're number one. It's us. And so they had to learn this lesson. Jesus, by asking, what do you want me to do for you, revealed below the surface what their real desires were at that moment. And it revealed their motives. And they were seeking their own glory. And they were somehow convinced that they were worthy of it. And so the rest of the disciples, by their anger, revealed they were thinking the same thing. They were just upset they didn't ask first. They were all out for their own glory, not God's. 
And so the disciples' expectations at that point are, well, we're on our path to glory. This is, this is what's happening. It's like we were playing Monopoly. We got the chance card. Advance to go. Collect $200. They were just going to go straight to the glory part. They thought they were going to help rule a kingdom, and they didn't realize how Jesus had prepared a way for them that this honor was reserved for those who were associated with Jesus and his suffering. And so he paints a picture. First he says, a cup. Can you drink this cup that I'm about to drink? Just kind of a, a, a metaphor for what he was about to go through. He also used the picture of baptism. And this is like a picture of being completely overwhelmed, completely um, overcome by something. Speaking of his own suffering and death, it was uniquely Jesus' mission to bear God's judgment for the sins of the world. We learn this later in, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, when a couple of the disciples, even after Jesus rose from the dead, they were still trying to piece together, why did this happen? What happened? And he said to them in, in Luke 24, 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? They just weren't seeing how this all fit together yet. They wanted to go straight to the glory part, kind of to the controlling part. And they didn't understand that we don't follow Jesus because we know in advance what we will get. We follow him because we're following him. He is our Savior and our Lord. And so they weren't focused on their journey. They were just kind of focused on what, what's in it for me. What's in it for me? So Jesus takes this opportunity to teach all of the disciples what true greatness is. So we're going to read that part, starting in verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is like the pivotal verse in the Gospel of Mark and one of the most pivotal verses in the whole Bible to understand who Jesus was. And he teaches us two things about true greatness. He teaches us, first of all, that it is based on being a servant. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. He told them greatness is different from what they'd been thinking. It's not having the position of authority. It's not about gaining power. And he points to negative examples in their culture. The rulers of the Gentiles who beat people into submission and, and, and were in authority through their power. And he says, you're looking at the wrong examples for what is great. It shall not be so among you. And then the second thing we learned about true greatness is the example of Jesus. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life 
as a ransom for many. If anyone was entitled to a seat of honor, it was Jesus, the Son of God, the creator of all things. And without mentioning the word love, he teaches us what love is to focus on others, to care for others, to sacrifice for others. Caring for others is what love is. That's the way of Jesus. To seek power, to ask for what the disciples wanted, a seat of power was to focus attention on themselves. And they couldn't be great until they understood, until they understood what true greatness was in God's sight. And so I, before we move on, I just want a word of encouragement here. James and John went on to be great disciples. Uh, they learned from this experience. Ultimately, James was the first apostle martyred. John was persecuted, exiled, but he wrote several books of the Bible. If we make mistakes, Jesus can help us learn from them. We can choose a different course of direction. If what we want is the wrong thing, he can help us move to the right thing. And so it's encouraging to see um, what what. Jesus was doing here in the lives of James and John. But then we're going to move on to the second example. So this is Bartimaeus. And it starts in verse 46. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up, and he came to Jesus. So we meet Bartimaeus. He was blind. He was living in a culture that was not kind to people with disabilities. All he could do was beg. He was left on a corner, sitting on the sidelines, to be forgotten. The culture attempted to define who Bartimaeus was. He wasn't worth anything. He was to be ignored and silenced. They just wanted him to shut up and go away. But Bartimaeus was desperate. He had concluded that the only hope he had to change his life for the better was in the person of Jesus, and Jesus was walking by. And Bartimaeus cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Even with no eyesight, Bartimaeus had great insight as to who Jesus was. Look at, look at what he already knew, that he had healing power. He knew that about Jesus. He knew that Jesus was merciful. And he had come to the understanding that Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior. We know this from the title that he gave Jesus, Jesus, Son of David which affirmed that he knew he had the status of the coming Messiah. And so, despite being told to shut up, 
Bartimaeus cried out all the more. And Jesus heard him in his desperation, and he stopped in his tracks. Jesus stopped for Bartimaeus, and he called for him. When I read that, I had a mental note. When nobody around has the time or the patience for you, Jesus does. And now Jesus asks him the same question that he asked James and John, because we reveal who we are by what we want. And his answer revealed who Bartimaeus was. Verse 51, and Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. So one thing we don't want to miss here is how he greeted Jesus. He said, Rabbi, which really is Rabboni. It's not quite teacher like James and John greeted him. The only other time we hear this phrase, Rabboni, or this title Rabboni, was when Jesus had died and risen from the dead and he was in the garden and John Chapter 20, Mary Magdalene encountered him, one of his followers, and she greeted him, Rabboni. And then she told the disciples, I've seen the Lord. It's a title for Lord and Master. It's a special title. That's how Bartimaeus approached Jesus. He humbly asks for his sight. He doesn't ask to be superhuman. He asked for something most humans already had. He didn't ask for riches or power or a throne. What he wanted revealed who he was. He had faith in Jesus. He wanted to follow Jesus. He couldn't in his blindness. His request wasn't the end all. It was the means for him to walk the road Jesus was walking and so his encounter here, the scripture ends with, he followed him on the way. That's how we know what was in the heart of Bartimaeus. And so James and John, we, we know and recognize as two of Jesus' chosen 12 disciples. But in this passage we've studied this morning, Bartimaeus really tells us more about being a disciple than James and John. And so when it's our turn to answer this question, when Jesus asks us, what do you want me to do for you? What can we learn from these two encounters? What's important? And the first thing is, ask. Go ahead and ask. He wants us to ask. In many different Bible passages, we're told to ask for what we need, for what we want. We saw even when James and John asked for the wrong thing, the Lord didn't rebuke them. He, he wanted them to ask. He asked. And so he wants to hear our request. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, verses 9 and 10, Jesus said, And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. 
we also read from Paul, the apostle, Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You know, sometimes I'm on the verge of an important decision or critical conversation in my life, and it will dawn on me, I feel unsettled about it because I haven't even talked to God about it. You know, we tend to put life on cruise control. He wants us to stop and ask. Take the time to ask, how can I build the discipline into my life to make sure that daily I talk to him about what I want, what I need. What do I want him to do for me? And so our first application question today, something to take home and ponder is, how can I make sure I ask God for what I want him to do in my life? How can I make sure I do that? James, the brother of the Lord, put it this way in James chapter 4, verse 2. He said, you do not have because you do not ask. So we should ask. So we need to ask, but the second point is we need to ask the real Jesus. Maybe a better way to say that is we need to understand who Jesus is. At the moment that James and John were asked by Jesus what they wanted, they were viewing him as a means to an end. Remember when they came and they said, first, promise what we're going to ask you for, you're going to do before we even ask you. Just promise you're going to say yes. It's, it's kind of like it, it fit better into an Aladdin movie, you know, with a genie. I mean, is that how we approached Jesus? A few years ago, Matt Michalatos wrote a fictional book with the title, My Imaginary Jesus. And in the story, he's looking for the real Jesus because he wants to ask him why he had allowed a certain tragedy in his life. He wanted to get, just sit down with Jesus and say, if you love us so much, why did you let this happen? In the, the fictional story, he's, he's going around looking for Jesus, and he starts running into imaginary Jesus, like there was magic eight-ball Jesus. You know, like one of those magic eight balls you would buy and shake, and then you'd look at the answer. Sometimes it would say, ask again later, or some random thing. There was perpetually angry Jesus, because some people believe that God was always angry at all of humanity all of the time. There was bargain Jesus, King James Jesus, liberal social services Jesus, political power Jesus. There were quite a few more, but eventually Matt found the real Jesus. He found the Jesus that Bartimaeus found. The real Jesus loved him. The real Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. I mean, why does the passage say that? Jesus came to give his life as a ransom. It points out an important truth about salvation. Jesus was a ransom for us. He was a substitute for us. 
Why did he have to give his life for us? We read in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, the good news is delivered that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He took the punishment for our sins that we deserved. In Matt's story, and in ours too, Jesus listened to him, he loved him, he wept with him. And so, like Bartimaeus, he approached Jesus as his Lord and Master. And in the story, whatever Jesus' control was over his situation and Matt's tragedy, he realized that it was for his betterment. He knew that Jesus, who loved him, wouldn't have made a decision in his life lightly The sorrow hadn't left, but the anger seeped away as he realized who Jesus really was. He said, I remember my imaginary Jesuses, and I looked to see if they were still there through a crack in the wall, but they were gone. Done at last. I hadn't said goodbye to them, and I was glad because they were less than the shadow of the real Christ. Do you know the real Jesus that we've been reading about in Mark's gospel? Or have you been dealing with an imaginary Jesus? The one you thought abandoned you and your family when your family went through a tough time? Or the one at church when you were a kid who seemed so out of touch with what was going on in your life? Let me introduce you to the real Jesus who came to the world to give us life. He's the one we can approach to ask for salvation and forgiveness, to ask him to be our Lord and the master of our life. And so I just ask you before we move on, have you accepted this real Jesus and his gift of salvation? Have you acknowledged that he died for you, for your sins, that you fall short like the rest of us, and you need a savior because there's nothing more important to do than to trust him with your life. And so when we ask Jesus what we want, we need, we need to ask, and we need to ask the real Jesus, but then we need to ask in humility, becoming more like Jesus, growing in our faith. Well, that's, that's the whole journey of discipleship. Naming what we want is actually part of our growth journey. Not asking what, what we want to want, not asking what we should want. Ask him what we want. That's how we grow. Like James and John, we might realize that we want to be in charge. We want to tell people what to do. We have other wants, and Jesus patiently teaches us this is how my kingdom works. We ask knowing that we might not have the right answer. That's humility. We come to him in humility. We ask, why do I feel angry? Why do I feel lonely? Why do I feel helpless? And as we ask him for these things, 
and we say, your will be done, those feelings start to go away and trust begins to fill that gap. Now, asking God for something and demanding it from him are two different things. In humility, we ask. Even Jesus, when he prayed to his father in Luke chapter 22, verse 42, this is how he did it. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. We ask in humility. Back in January, when my brother Kevin was diagnosed with liver cancer, I was angry. I was walking this, uh, this river trail near my home, and I remember, that's like the wilderness of Sterling Heights, <laughs> where I go to be alone. I remember yelling out audibly to God, you can't do this. You can't do this. This isn't fair. You can't take him. And then I felt the irony a few weeks later when I was sitting by his bed as he was dying, and I was saying, take him, take him. Please don't make him go through another breath. And I had to come to the point where I trusted God knew what was best and humbly turn it over to him. Your will be done. We need to be willing to accept God's answer to come to him humbly. And so the second application question for us is as we search over our life and we ask Jesus, when he says, what do you want me to do for you? And we, we, we give him our answer. Once we know the answer, we think about it. Where am I in my journey with Jesus? What does that tell me? What I want? What I'm thinking about? What I desire? And sometimes, like James and John, we have to admit that we're focused on the wrong thing. But he's gracious to us, and we can change course. C.S. Lewis put it this way, if you're on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. It takes humility to do that, but we can change. And so we need to ask, we need to ask the real Jesus, we need to ask in humility, and the fourth thing is we need to ask in faith, just like Bartimaeus. What a great example to us. The persistent faith of Bartimaeus and a God who cares. It's the same hope we need when we're facing that mountain in our life. Our desperate situation, our serious health issue, our relationship breakdown, our loss. Knowing that even though we're experiencing suffering in this world, Jesus cares. We need that faith. I know he cares for me. To know like Bartimaeus did, if I call out, he'll stop. We have to be persistent, all in. We can't let others keep us from Jesus or from having faith in him. We have to believe that God can do the impossible if it's his will. Most important thing that we 
need to remember in our walk with God is how much he loves us. He loves us. He loved James and John too much to let them be selfish and self-centered. He worked in their lives. He loved Bartimaeus too much to leave him sitting on the sidelines, helpless. He stopped. He would not pass him by. Henri Nguyen made an observation that's really stuck with me about faith in God. He said, the person who loves can go to places where she or he would rather not go. The interesting thing is that when we're in love, we don't feel the pain in the way that other people think we would. Our eyes are focused on the person we love. And this truth allows us to ask the God we love for what we want with utmost faith. And we ask him and then we trust the answer. Because he loves us. And we love him. So let's recap for this week. When Jesus asks us, what do you want me to do for you? We've learned we should ask. We should ask the real Jesus. We should ask in humility. We should ask with faith. And so I hope you get the time to apply these questions to your life. How can I make sure that I daily ask him. Ask him for what I want him to do in my life. And then to all of us, search our lives. What do you want Jesus to do? What does that answer say about where you are and what the next step might be in your life to grow in how he wants you to grow? What do you want me to do for you? Reveals, reveals a lot about us. Let's just pray. Lord, as we've looked at your word, we just pray that you would help it sink into our hearts. Make it clear to us how much you love us, how you came to serve and to give your life a ransom so that we could come to you that we could be forgiven of our sins, that we could be saved, that we could come to know you and walk with you through all of the challenges in our lives. Knowing it ends in glory because you love us, you have what's best for us in mind. We thank you, Lord. We own how hard it is sometimes and we just want to lean on you. So help us to take, take your word and apply it to our lives. Help us to have that daily, that daily talk with you. So we ask your blessing on your word. We pray if any don't know you yet in this personal way, that even today they might come and ask you for forgiveness and make you the Lord and master of their life. We pray for that. We thank you that we have in you a Savior. And so we continue to worship now with thanks in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray.